Hello, here we go. Wow. Good afternoon. Can I have everybody's attention, please? Um, welcome to the FIA Viva Luncheon. I'm so glad so many people are here. You're in for a treat, and we'll talk about that later. First of all, what we'd like to do is um, just go around and, and briefly introduce yourself, tell who you are, where you're from, and complete this sentence. I am a audience member, singer, performer. Just to keep it very brief because we have so many people. Yay! So welcome. Um, we'll introduce um, everybody else as we go around. Enjoy your dinner, but we're going to get the introductions over with and um, then let you settle down and enjoy your meal. So uh, I'll start off. I'm Lynn Heddle. I'm the president of Friends in Art, and I'm a non-professional singer and Celtic harpist. All right. And I'm Michael Byington. I'm the treasurer of FIA. I am uh, certainly willing to take your money for memberships after the luncheon is over, and I have my patent paper so I can write down your name, address, and all the other necessary bona fides to get you into our database. Um, in terms of my arts, I do have a master's in drama therapy, but then I went and got another master's in orientation and mobility, so I'm uh, an instructor of that, but I still do some theater, and I write parody songs, and uh, uh, sometimes sing them at disability rights conferences and places like that. And I'm moving on around now. Lisa Helen Hoffman. I'm a consultant. I'm I'm blind, and I'm a consultant here in in Rochester at our regional theater, Jiva Theater Center, uh, for the audio described theater for the blind program. I'm also the trainer and the coordinator. <laughs> um, and unfortunately, the theater is dark now, so. There is nothing going on that we can go participate with. I'm Barbara Hoffman. I'm a guest of Lisa Hoffman, and I renovate properties in the Susan B. Anthony Historic District. And Lynn reminds me that we have both Viva people and FIA people, and we are delighted to have that uh, partnership for this luncheon. But if you are a veteran, why well, you can tell us a little bit about your service in that capacity as well. Hi, everyone. My name is Ann Chapetta. Um, um, I, I'm a Friends in Art board member. I am here also in my capacity um, as a poet and writer. Uh, and I am the spouse of a Navy veteran. And I'm a readjustment counselor for a vet center in New York. And I'm from New Rochelle. Hi there. I'm Darian Slayton Fleming from. Uh, ACB of Oregon. I am the secretary. Um, I am here because I'm, uh, and I'm very lucky I chose to sit at this table because um, I'm making uh, a documentary about John Fleming, who was a longtime president and other officers of Viva. And I'm hoping that we will be able to um, share our work with you next year. Um, I also wrote a book called Speak Up for Yourself, Get What You Need and Feel Book Get What You Need and Feel Good About It. And it's in paperback in the Amazon store and it's on Kindle. And it will be in Bookshare and on Audible. Excellent, thank you. Here we go. I'm Charlotte Tush and I'm Marty Klein's significant other. 
as well as his assistant director for his documentary film, and I'm the partner of a veteran. And I'll bet anything that we're now going to meet Charlotte's significant other. Well, I'm Charlotte's significant other. My name is Marty Klein. And what Charlotte forgot to mention is she's an incredible artist. So uh, she's got a lot of wonderful recognition for her art. And she has her own website, too. Um, I'm a musician. Uh, I'm an author. I've written three books and two screenplays. Uh, and I love singing and music. And um, the latest creative art has been making this documentary. And you'll hear more about it after we go around to everybody else. So thank you for all coming. And after we eat. All right, I'm coming around to this table. We've got a couple of uh, people over here in the suburbs. I am Nora Martin. And I, um, I guess I'm a non-professional singer. Uh, hopefully a budding composer, and I also have done a little work with computer graphics. Wonderful. Okay, here we go, sir. I'm Edwin Rumsey from Houston, Texas, member of Friends in Art, and I enjoy music, concerts, plays, and I like dancing. Wonderful. All right. I'm moving around the projector here. Don't want to make anything go crash thud. Not that kind. Well, I have food. Can you go to her a minute? Uh, she has food in her mouth, so I'll start at this end. Okay. What do you have in your mouth, sir? <laughs> Hi. I'm Steve Robertson from Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I love music and reading books, and I'm, I guess you say, audience. All right. Oh, and I'm vice president of American Council of the Blind of Minnesota. All right. <laughs> Okay, I'm Bo I'm Bonnie Robertson, and um, I used to play flute, and I used to I had a speech theater minor when I was in college, and um, I'm currently not doing much art, but I enjoy art and music. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay, and I'm Nancy Shattig from um, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, I am on the their board. I'm a board member, and I. I like to sing. I, I'm in a couple choirs, and so that's my my passion. Okay. And my dear, is your mouth doing anything? It, nope. It's empty. <laughs> Hi. I, I am Colleen Kitagawa, and I'm from Richfield, and I have my guide dog, Mackie, with me, and I enjoy reading and going to plays, and I watch dogs out of my home for a little business. Thank you. Okay. Moving to the next table. Let's see here. All right, I gotta come clear over here now. This is another suburb. The far suburbs. Hi, my name is Pat Sheehan. I am here with the veterans. I work at Department of Veterans Affairs. Um, very pleased to be serving veterans, and so I'm, I'm here in that capacity. Also, ACB board member. Uh, Marty, I'd love to chat with you afterwards, and. Um, so you, uh, and catch up and, and any other veterans that are able to sit and visit afterwards, that'd be great. Thanks. Hello, I'm Gloria Broderick from Pasadena, California, and I'm an audience member, and I love art and love to do things with museum accessibility and other kinds of things like that. And next is a voice you'll recognize. <laughs> this is Marjorie Beeman. And I'm a spouse of a veteran of 20-something years. And since you're asking about FIA, 
I used to play the trumpet in a dance band. <laughs> the thing I don't understand is I can remember margarine at these conventions doing this kind of thing for the 35 years, I think, that I've been coming to ACV <laughs> conventions. And, and during that time, my waist has expanded and my beard got white. But margarine runs around so much, she's still skinny. And her beard is not white. Oh, wait, she doesn't have one. Hello, everyone. This is Joe Sorensen, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Just published a book, Self-Publishing Through Author House. Exciting Life of Joe Sorensen, Volume 1. You can buy it online at Amazon and other places. Moving upward. All right. And I'm Ellen, his other half. And um, also, you can... I also have cards uh, in Braille for those that'll show you as to where you can go get the book. Volume two will be out in, as they say, soon. Soon in, in Basel, we're in the church choir, so at our church, so um, thank you. Judy Joy Weidenborner, I'm an audience member and I came because it just sounded interesting and I'm in a retired state employee and loving my retirement. All right. Wonderful. I am Gary Shaw, I'm here with Judy Joy, support her activities. Uh, sounds like everybody here has done something good and famous. Uh, the only thing I can claim is that I went to high school with Richard Gere. Uh, and <laughs> and uh, he, during high school, he talked to me, he says, Gare, should I go into acting? I said, look, look at Richard. You don't know anything about acting. You're never going to make it. So. <laughs> All right, here we go, sir. Hi, my name's Ernie. I'm from Honolulu. I'm just a retired person who likes to hang around the VA and make fun of other veterans. <laughs> what war did you serve in, sir? I served in Korea, peacetime Korea. Peacetime Korea, okay. During the Vietnam era. <laughs> All right, here we go. I'm Krista Earl, and I'm from New York, New York. And uh, I play. Oh, okay, sorry. Thank you. I'm Krista Earl from New York, and I play. I sing and play guitar, but mostly I'm an audience member, and I, my day job is building websites and accessible technology. Wonderful, and there's art in that in in, in and of itself. Here we are. There. I have to eat it, huh? So, <coughs> my name is uh, Leah Gardner. I'm an audience member right now, uh, because this sounded like a, a unique uh, luncheon today. Um, I used to write performance poetry, uh, but at this point, I uh, work at Google as a quality assurance tester. I'm Rita Reese Whiting. I'm affiliate president for Arkansas Council of the Blind, and I am a daughter, sister, and aunt of veterans. All right. And I have heard much of Leah's slam poetry, and it is an experience, I assure you. A very interesting experience. Coming way over to this side now. We got a bunch of people. Let's see. Have I been over here yet? Yeah. Uh, oh, yes. There's the lady who had her mouth full. It's this. I, I've been there. I think I've, I think I got it, Madam uh, President. Here you are. Thank you. Enjoy your meal. And we'll be back with you in uh, a few minutes. Yes, we have one more person who has wandered in who needs to introduce himself. 
the great. I'm great. Jason uh, Castanguay. I'm Jason, and I'm here. Happy to be here. It took me a little while to get here, but here I am. And uh, I hope all of you are enjoying your luncheon. Do I do anything artistic? Let's see. I, I, uh, I play the piano, and I sing. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Would you, uh, Marjorie? I, I might mention that... Uh, Jason is accompanying 4,923 people at the showcase tonight. He's a wonderful, wonderful keyboard artist, as well as a harpist. And the good Miss Marjorie is going to introduce two more people who came in. I have one more that came in. Hi, Elizabeth Aldworth. Um, I am responsible for connecting Marty Klein with this group, and so. I'm here in my capacity as a longtime Friends in Art supporter. And Mike Mandel says a special hello to all of you. Hi, my name is Richard uh, Fiorello. I'm from the ACB chapter in Buffalo, New York. And happy lunch to everyone. I'm Carlene Fiorello, and I'm with the ACB Buffalo chapter, and I'm secretary for that group. Good afternoon. I'm back. Continue to eat, enjoy your meal and your dessert, and we're going to go ahead and get um, Marty talking to us and inspiring us. I don't think he needs any more introduction. He'll just introduce himself and tell you what he uh, wants to tell you, and he just I think he just speaks for himself. But before we do that, we have one little order of business, and that is the CEU codes. Is anyone in here getting CEUs, and are you ready for your code? Are you ready for the code? Is anyone, is everyone ready for their code? No, okay. Let me know when you are. While you're getting ready, uh, we are Friends in Art. We do have a showcase performance of the Performing Arts tonight at 8. You can get your tickets. They're 15. It's going to be a great show. Um, 22 acts. <laughs> um, and we're excited about doing that. We also have a booth. We're in booth eight with our tote bags this year. We also have some audio um, it, materials down there, resources and, hard, and thumb drives with Derek Lane, who is our audio geek board member, along with Jason. He's the other one. So if you want to, if you're interested in that, stop by booth eight and talk to Derek when he's there. And um, what else? I think. Okay, is everyone ready for the code? Okay. The way this is going to work, I will read the beginning code now once. I will read the ending code at the end of the questions after the movie once. Okay. Here we go. Seven. F as in Frank. Zero six. Four. Everybody got that? Seven F is in Frank. Zero six four. And you'll get the other one later. And if he is ready, I'm going to give the microphone to Marty Klein and just let him take over. So here is Marty Klein. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Uh, I really appreciate getting this opportunity to share with you things that hopefully will uh, 
trigger something inside of each one of you because each one of you is a gem waiting to blossom. And uh, I know that. Uh, and here's the story that I'm going to help you get in touch with. Uh, obviously, I'm here because I am now unofficially the only totally blind filmmaker in the country. And uh, the film that I made is Why Can't We Serve? And I will tell you a little bit about that in a little bit. But right now, I want to tell you how I got to be where I am right now. Um, we're going to start in 1970 in May when I got my medical discharge getting out of the military. I was in the Air Force. And I got out with an eye disease. I'd never thought I'd lose my sight. But within a year, little bit more than a year, I was totally blind. Um, for the next seven years, I didn't know which way was up. I felt terrible about who I was. I didn't know how to create, recreate a life without sight. But I was not just running from my blindness and my disability. I was running from my Jewishness. I was running from my maleness. And I was running from my being a veteran. I was running away from everything that I was. And over the years, I started relaxing more with my disability, which helped me relax more with my maleness, with my Jewishness. But just recently, over the last few years, I stopped running from my being a veteran. Uh, and this movie has really helped me be more at peace with who I am. And I want to encourage all of you to look at the things that you've been running from. Because as long as you're running from them, they'll chase you forever. <laughs> But if you can turn around and make friends with them, no matter how awkward it feels in the beginning, it's really a great thing to do to make friends with those parts of you that you think are less than elegant. Because we all have elegance and grace in our hearts and our beings. And uh, each one of you knows that it's true. And uh, I encourage you all to try to connect to your own elegance and grace because you're all beautiful people. OK, um, so. Uh, I'm going to talk now about the movie because the intrigue is that, well, well first, I, I, I wrote three books uh, as an author. Uh, the first one was uh, my memoir, uh, Blindsided, One Man's Journey from Sight to Insight. And uh, I learned a lot having lost my sight and having reclaimed the life, which was a, an amazing process. I'm sure all of you know that challenge. <laughs> and we're all still on it. <laughs> Um, the second book was called Emotional Cleansing, The Spiritual Journey Toward a Clear Heart. And that was my uh, compilation of years of being a counselor and learning so much about how the human body, the mind functions and what we're doing on the planet. Um, the third book was a fun book to write called The Enlightened Gambler, um, the, the heart and spirit of the risk taker in all of us because we all have that risk takers. And everybody who's visually impaired who's crossed the street knows what I mean. <laughs> we have courage, just the fact that we're crossing streets and we're doing things that you know, we're trusting others to be conscious. But we're also, in the same time, having to be really clear about which way we're going and what step up and step down is all about. You know the whole story. OK, so I wrote those books. Then I wrote a couple of screenplays. I got involved in uh, trying to express myself through another form of art. Uh, I ended up working on the 
beginning yoga for the blind and visually impaired uh, yoga program, which many of you know about. I'm very proud of that. It's still a very functioning uh, uh, program that many, many people are enjoying who are visually impaired. Um, and then, he, then it came to this idea that I had, I knew what I went through in my struggle around finding myself as a blind man. It was very difficult, but I got lucky. I fell into a couple of uh, situations where I got a lot of support and a lot of help to try to learn that I could have a life without sight. I didn't know that I could do that. And once I realized that, I started feeling really good about myself and my life. It was a nice revelation. Moving, uh, divorcing my first wife, moving into my house by myself, living with my dog and my cat, and learning that I can take care of them and myself, all of a sudden, it changed my life. It, but, but for years, I was just happy being who I was. But just a few years ago, I heard that 22 veterans every day are finding reasons to commit suicide. And that broke my heart. And when I realized that, I said, I got to try to do something about it. So I made the decision to try to make a movie to try to help. Because you know, you call legislators and congressmen, and you know, it's an uphill battle. But if you make a movie and you move people with the movie, all of a sudden, the pol politicians want to get aboard because they want to follow public opinion so that they can get reelected. So my job, and I, as I took it on, was to try to figure out how I can make a movie as a blind man. So I had the idea that I did not want to make a movie to get people to feel sympathetic and pity for those who are disabled. I wanted to make a movie that would inspire everybody who saw the movie to be so amazed at people with disabilities and all the things we can do, not just focusing on what you can't do. So I started trying to raise some money. I raised $13,000 in the beginning, and that got me started. Um, I hired a cinematographer to work with me. I interviewed a bunch of people that I thought would be important interviews for the movie. And, and one thing led to another. We started working on the interviews. Uh, specifically, when my cinematographer uh, interviewed each person, 30, 40 minute interviews, I was interviewing them, he was filming them. Uh, I, he would give me an audio version of the interview. I would listen to it 10 times until I found exactly the clips in those interviews that would be good for the movie. I, I put, they're called selects, I put them together with each interview and then we'd put them up on the screen, we'd try to figure out ways that they would match up. It was a, quite a process. But in the process, I learned that I could be totally without sight and still make a movie. Uh, it was a wonderful expansion. And one of the things I want you to know is that don't let any of your, of your thoughts, don't believe that thoughts when they say you can't do it because you're blind. You may not be able to do it, but that's probably because of your uh, sense of your powerlessness, your helplessness, your hopelessness. But that's not about your blindness. Okay, I made a movie. <laughs> you can do anything. All right, um, so um, it took a while to make the movie. It took about two years. Uh, and we, I, one of the, uh, the Florida Council of the Blind in Tallahassee 
I, I go to Tallahassee a lot, and they've been really supportive. And um, anybody know Sila Miller? Well, she's a wonderful uh, ACB member, and uh, they donated a, almost a thousand dollars to help me make the movie, and with the one stipulation that I would I would have it audio described for visually impaired people. So uh, some of you might know Joel Snyder. He's an ACB. <laughs> well. Well, Joel, I hired Joel to do the audio description. So when you hear his voice, you'll know him. He's in the movie. <laughs> He's the describer. Uh, and I feel really good that I made that commitment uh, so that everybody with that site, and for, uh, in addition for the deaf and hard of hearing, it's open caption as well, this version. So the version you're going to see today, it's 54 minutes. And it will take you through the whole uh, movie and... Uh, Joel will describe the, vi the parts that are visual where there's no audio. And um, at the end of the movie, we will have a Q&A for whatever time we have left. And I'm sure you'll have some questions. Uh, right now, I'm open to taking one or two questions or comments from anybody before we show the movie. Does anybody have anything you'd like to ask me? Yeah. Yell it out. The whole movie took about two years, um, but I think the uh, the the process. You know, I, I I one of the things I when I grew up, my my parents taught me, whenever you have a passion for something, do your best to uh, seek excellence at your skill. So I I have the ability to stay with something and persevere until it gets better and better, and. I kept watching the movie over and over again with the people, different people, and I said, well, what do you like there? What should we put there? What's different here? And, and I learned a lot about making a movie. I learned about that I could do it. I could tell the people what I needed who had sight, and I could tell what I wanted in the movie in those scenes. They would find spots. Like, for example, in the movie, there's one scene where uh, I wanted to have my cinematographer take a picture of the Kingston Veterans Association Clinic uh, because I, I had on audio the phone message which says, you know, if you're thinking of harming yourself, please call this number. And then you'll see in the movie it says, the narrator says, and even the Veterans Administration is now acknowledging the seriousness of the problem. So I wanted them to have the, the clinic, the picture of the clinic. So, you know, uh, different pictures of people with disabilities doing things later on in the movie. Uh, and at the end of the movie, we have uh, a, wonder, a wonderful uh, scene where uh, there are a lot of disabled athletes who are doing amazing athletic uh, things. And Joel will describe them as best as he can. But while that's happening, the song that I wrote called A Veteran's Anthem, which I will actually be performing tonight, um, is the song in the movie. And I wrote the song to try to help veterans and other people as well focus on life and not death. So um, I think, Lynn, what time we have right now? Anybody, what time? Time check. Little left one? Okay, one more question, and then we'll start the movie. What is it, Darian?
Well, well, I used to live in Tallahassee. I have a lot of blind friends there, and I used to go to the Tallahassee Council of the Blind meetings, monthly meetings. So I had a community there. Uh, and when they heard that I was trying to make a movie, uh, and the movie is focused on reducing veteran suicides, but it's also focused on uh, changing the culture around how people see people with disabilities. They, they were so supportive, and they decided to you know, fundraise you know, to, to you know, put some of their money into helping me make the movie, and I was so appreciative of them. So I didn't fundraise; they decided to support it. Um, otherwise, we could talk more about fundraising. But uh, fundraising is not my favorite thing. But the bottom line is, we still need money to help distribute the movie and get social media to recognize us. We have a "Why Can't We Serve" Facebook page and a Why Can't We Serve uh, website. You can go to either one of them or both of them, and you'll learn a lot more about the project. But I think for now, would be a good time to stop and start the movie. So we'll have about 20 minutes after the movie, so if you have any questions, I'm happy to answer them after the movie. And thanks so much for coming. Appreciate it. Marty Klein Productions. Long rows of white grave markers. Text, 22 veterans take their own lives every day. The veteran suicide rate in the United States is an ongoing tragedy. Many vets who have taken their lives were wounded in the battlefield. Some believe those soldiers, disabled in combat, who are still high functioning, deserve the option of remaining in the military with a chance for a career of dignity rather than being forced out. This could help reduce the number of suicides but right now, there is no such policy. One, the fantasy. Flags wave in black and white footage of James Cagney marching as George M. Cohan in the film Yankee Doodle Dandy. Black and white footage of a military parade. The 82nd's divisional colors carry 10 battle streamers from this war. With 467 days of combat time, the 82nd was decorated for the Sicily campaign. This is the jump off. This is Operation Homecoming, the last official mission of the All American 82nd Airborne Division. Their objective the four and a half mile parade route through New York City. The largest big time march for many who will never march again. From high above the parade route. <laughs> Two, the reality. Night, a firefight. Shells explode with flashes of light. Combatants drop to their stomachs on sandy terrain. Trace around streams of light from firing weapons streak through the air. Daytime, soldiers scramble up a hill. A medic helps a soldier writhing in mud. Another soldier is carried on a stretcher. Soldiers with one leg march on crutches. A wounded soldier on a stretcher. A white combatant carried piggyback by a black comrade. 
News headlines. Veteran kills himself in parking lot of VA hospital on Long Island. Suicide rates among veterans has risen sharply since 2001. At a cemetery, a man kneels before a flag at a grave. One military family, two lost sons, one to combat, one to suicide. Heartbreaking suicide note from 30-year-old Iraq veteran to his family, I am free. Experts worry high military suicide rates are new normal. A flag waves, text scrolls. When we send our troops to fight a war, we must understand the devastating long-term effects. Over 58,000 soldiers died in combat in the Vietnam War. But does anybody know that we lost more than twice that number to suicide in the years that have followed? None are so blind as those who will not see. None are so deaf as those who will not hear. And none are so numb as those who will not feel. Movie title, Why Can't We Serve? News headline, 22 push-up challenge hopes to save the lives of veterans. Saugerties High School, two, young people do push-ups on a gym floor. Four, five, six, seven, eight. Fred Hirsch, assistant nine, principal. If you had asked me how many vets were committing suicide, I might have guessed one or two a day, but to learn that 22 every day are committing suicide, I just couldn't believe it. I was just absolutely shocked. And the kids were absolutely shocked too. They, they had no idea. In 2014, over 7,000 veterans committed suicide, 20 each and every day. Some vets think the actual number is much higher. Many still honor the number 22. Across the country, there is a movement to keep the focus on this ongoing tragedy until something is done to decrease the number of veteran suicides in our country. But is anybody listening? Standing, the students salute. Next, indoors, bearded Marty Klein, Sergeant, U.S. Air Force, retired, New York. My father was a big, strong guy, and he was born in Germany in 1900 and actually fought in World War I. But he loved being an American citizen, and he loved the American flag and what it stood for. And he would even tear up when he saw the American flag on TV and they were singing the national anthem. I really loved my father a lot in spite of our differences, and I always wanted him to be proud of me. So I decided to join the military, and he was pleased. But I had no idea of the effect of that decision on the rest of my life. Outdoors. I came down with an eye disease while serving in the Air Force during the Vietnam War. Sergeant Klein in uniform. And soon after lost my vision completely. I was devastated, obviously. I was discharged out of the service and sent home. Didn't know quite what to do or which way to turn. My friends didn't know how to relate to me, and I didn't know who I was. In a photo, a bundled man on a bench. Many veterans struggle with fitting in when they come home. 
Some actually feel as if they are prisoners of war in their own country. Anthony Forte, Lieutenant Colonel, retired. People uh, here recently have asked me, well, do you miss the Army? No, I don't miss the Army. I miss soldiers. Oh. A photo of two comrades. I miss the interaction. I miss the support. You become somebody else. I don't know who I am now. Tilts his head, shakes his head. You understand that people get hurt. You understand that people get killed. His eyes well with tears. But what we do can take away all hope. It can take away your identity. It can take away your belief in just about everything. And we have to find a way to give it back to him. We have to. Larry Winters, former mental health counselor, Marine Corporal, retired. And the military has, sends these soldiers into battle and then kicks them out when they come back, if they're disabled. A black and white photo as a young man. They should be the ones that take care of them, support them. Bill Forte, sergeant, retired. I had uh, a lot of disabilities while I was on, in service. That uh, My knees were so bad I couldn't run anymore. Uh, I have a problem, it's called dumping syndrome as a result of losing most of my stomach. Uh, these things didn't stop me from serving. Uh, I know of cases where people that were missing limbs were allowed to continue to serve. There's a, there's a lot of wounds that I feel would not automatically put somebody out of service. They, it shouldn't. They, they're still able to contribute. There's, there's a lot of things they can do. Uh, you take an individual who's lost a, the use of their legs, there's plenty of things in a computer field that they can still contribute. You take a pilot that's been injured in an airplane crash and, and can no longer fly. I think there's a lot of people that are being forced out due to disabilities that could continue to serve, could continue to feel a part of the military, and uh, Toto, as a young sergeant, it, it's just not right that we push him out. Larry Winters, veterans that have been discharged that had a, had a career planned, are are suffered a great deal. Uh, plus, they're put on disability, and uh, disability has its own positive side and then downside. If you're disabled and you're not doing anything for it, it becomes very hard to engage back in life. For many many civilians have no idea how to talk to a veteran especially a veteran that's been through trauma. No one was really focused on the, on the public. Everyone's focused on the veteran. And the more you focus on the veteran, the more the veteran is the victim. You've got to be injured, you've got to be screwed up, you've got to be broken, you've got to be disabled in order for us to be able to know what to do with you. But we need to have a broader sense of what it is to sacrifice your life for the rest of your life. It's altered. And there needs to be a way that that gets honored in a and, and uh, acknowledged by the public. A VA clinic. Thank you for calling Kingston VA Clinic. If this is a life-threatening emergency, please hang up and dial 911. If you are having thoughts of harming yourself, please press zero to be routed to a veteran's crisis line or hang up and call 
273-8255. And even the Veterans Administration is now acknowledging the tragic reality of the situation. Emily Sachs, PhD. My name is Emily Sachs. I'm a clinical psychologist, uh, and one of my areas of specialization is war trauma. Um, so I've worked with refugees and survivors of torture from around the world, and I've also worked with American soldiers and veterans as a staff psychologist at a Veterans Affairs Medical Center uh, specializing in post-traumatic stress disorder and chronic pain treatment. Um, pain can't be completely avoided. Um, and importantly, that that's actually what makes him the same as everyone else, not different. I mean, that's the thing, that it's his humanity that hurts when a comrade dies and he survives. And so that hurt is actually a sign of health. And that's what we often miss. Anthony Forte. It's one of, one of the beauties of being, being with soldiers is the most strenuous, most heartbreaking things, they find a way to get through and they bring you with them. And I think that's why the camaraderie at Soldiers is so strong, is we share these experiences. I, I got to tell you, in the last few years, it's been hard because I'm going to miss Lieutenant Colonel Kelly Hodge a lot. A black and white photo, Hodge in uniform. His retirement tour was working for me doing global force management. And he was right where I am today. And he broke. And he's one of those statistics now. He took his own life. He didn't know how to adapt. I don't think we did enough for him. We missed something. Three, positive change or not. Black and white photos, including President George H.W. Bush signing a document flanked by two men using wheelchairs. On July 26, 1990, Congress passed the Americans with Disabilities Act, which required all businesses and corporations to make their work environments accessible to all people. The ADA also required all businesses to be equal opportunity employers and enforced penalties on businesses that continue to practice any form of discrimination based on disability. In the years since that law has passed, the standard of living for people with disabilities has improved greatly. In fact, currently over 13% of the federal workforce are people with disabilities. However, the one organization that has been exempt from needing to comply with this law has been, and still is, the United States military. Former U.S. Congressman and retired Colonel Chris Gibson. It's actually uh, more conducive to the taxpayer to retain the service member because there's already been enormous investment the basic training, the advanced individual training, the MLS training, the unique skills training, including leadership schools that the individual uh, may have attended prior to. So, you know, when we lose a service member, uh, that requires a whole new accession and all that upfront cost to be able to prepare an individual for certain responsibilities. So, uh, in most cases, um, we actually, we the taxpayer, we benefit from uh, allowing for this disabled American um, who may have, have been wounded in battle or otherwise incurred these uh, disabilities to be able to continue to serve. Anthony Forte. See, during the Second World War, if you were still able, regardless of the disability you may have had, whether it was a missing leg, loss of vision, 
Your skills were so important, your contribution was so important that it wasn't overlooked. We can't afford to lose good people. Paul Cox, Marine Sergeant, retired. I've known a number of young veterans who have killed themselves, and it's not, uh, it's just so tragic when a 25, 26 year old guy says, I can't do it anymore. And, and uh, a lot of it's isolation. Um, I can see how uh, someone gets injured or ill during the, and, and the one that really identifies with the military might, um, you know, really be lost if they're like, booted out. Eddie Ramirez. When you graduate from high school and you join the military thinking that hopefully it's going to be a career for you, and you go and you experience different things that, effective, that affect you and uh, your state of mind, and then you come back, uh, it's almost like a feeling of helplessness because you're pulled away from what you know and uh, your camaraderie and your, your team and you get placed back into society where you don't have that. So I could see why many men and women uh, do the, the deed of suicide when they can't get help, they can't find a job, and uh, there's no support mechanisms there for them. Although the VA does have a lot of programs in place, uh, it's like a net. Some of these folks fall through the net. Bill Forte. You are a team, and when you're, it's like playing baseball. All of a sudden, you're taken out of the lineup for no apparent reason. You feel like you can still contribute, and you're not even given the chance to show that you can contribute. That's what's happening with a lot of the, the service members. A significant number of these people, if they were proper, properly retrained and allowed to remain, I, I think that would be tremendous help and with the vast number of suicides we're experiencing in our armed forces today this needs to be looked at seriously I think there's a direct correlation between those suicides and the lack of dis disabled people in the military for the history of disability a spider and fly in the spider's web our culture has always been confused about the disabled and for a good reason the images of the predator and the prey are etched in our brains from an early age. For the spider, it's one meal, but for the victim caught in the web, it's the end of life. An antelope with a disability has little chance in the animal kingdom. Survival of the fittest still rules the wild, and the shortened life all too often comes to a grueling and torturous end. How many times have we seen the prey fall victim to its predator? Yes, survival of the fittest has its cruel realities, but is this also a fact for human beings? Physical weakness for human beings used to lead to a horrible life most of the time, or even death. But times have changed. Now, people with disabilities have a good chance to live a meaningful life. But many of us still have in our minds that disability can feel like a death sentence. There, but for the grace of God, go I. Yet as we speak, there are officially 56 million disabled people in our country, about one out of every five people, and most likely there are thousands more who have not registered as disabled. You're either currently disabled or you're going to experience some form of disability in your lifetime sooner or later. Soldiers salute. Strong and healthy one day, and the next day, a life-changing disability? This happens to many of our soldiers, and the effects are often devastating to one's self-image. 
Chris Gibson. For our paratroopers that were maimed, uh, who had a desire to continue to serve, uh, I did everything I could, and in fact, in many cases, successful, to retain them in service so they could continue, uh, including getting promoted and moving on and flourishing in service. And, um, you know, just doing everything I could for these guys uh, to make sure that they rise to their God-given potential. I felt empowered that if I had someone who really wanted to serve and continue to serve, uh, that we could, we could make that recommendation. And if that meant they were kept in MOS, uh, military occupational specialty, uh, you know, that was, a, that was a great thing if they had that opportunity and physical capacity. But in other cases where they didn't have that physical capacity, that they could be reclassified into in a different military occupational specialty where they could continue to not only contribute, but really to flourish and to be promoted and uh, to really feel uh, respected and appreciated for their uh, unique abilities and for their service. A photo of Major Ivan Castro. September 2nd, 2006, about 20 miles southwest of Baghdad, Iraq. Ivan Castro was severely injured when his unit was attacked by enemy mortar rounds. He recovered after a number of surgeries, but lost his vision completely in the process. Having served for over 18 years prior to the attack, he went on to serve for another 10 years, this time as a totally blind soldier before retiring. Major Castro. I've been very blessed uh, to have served in the military. I came in the Army back in 1988, made it to the rank of uh, E7, and uh, Sergeant First Class, and I uh, went to OCS and got a commission. Upon uh, earning my commission, uh, it was an infantry commission, as an infantry officer, I uh, went to the 82nd and deployed to Afghanistan and then to Iraq. You know, when after I was given the news that I, I lost my sight, uh, you could imagine that this is the only thing I, I had done for 18 years. This is what I loved to do. This was my passion. His book, Fighting Blind. You know, and, and uh, my goal and dreams was to serve as long as I could. And it wasn't just 18 or 20 years. My goal was to go you know, beyond 30 if I could have. And, um, you know, I told my uh, chain of command that I was willing to, uh, to do anything, anything that I, I, I had to do in order to stay in. Uh, and that, you know, with my experience and my will. A man with a prosthetic arm. There have been disabled soldiers who have been allowed to remain in the military but only on a case-by-case -case basis, and the commander of each base makes those decisions. Interestingly enough, though, there is an obscure policy called continuing on active duty, which a few selected disabled servicemen can apply for, but only if they already have served for at least 15 years. Major Castro. My position after getting injured was being the executive officer for headquarters and headquarters company. Now that unit deployed and I was kept back as uh, re like rear, uh, rear detachment commander. So I had to deal with, uh, with all the issues of the unit that was deployed, plus the folks that were coming in, the casualties, and all the little uh, to-dos that were left behind at the unit. You know? and, and what it is is they provide automation um, for everyone in, in the government with any type of disability. And so they provided the software uh, for me to, at my work environment, to, for me to be totally independent.
Larry Winters. Well, there's a, a friend of mine and someone who's wrote, written, I think, a very, a very influential book on me called uh, War in the Soul, Ed Tick, uh, who talks about identity disorder being the contrib major contributor to suicide. And sort of what you were saying, you, you were blind, you came out of the military blind, and you had a whole new identity you had to figure out and locate. And f it's, a, it's similar to that for a, uh, a combat soldier or anyone that's leaving the military, whether you're injured physically or psychologically or just having to adapt to the fact that this is a completely different world. Marty Klein. The doctors didn't know what to do, but I was screaming inside. I didn't know how to live this life. I didn't know how to handle this transition from sight to no sight. I had no idea what kind of future I could have. I was just trying to get by one day at a time. And to be honest, I got into drugs because at least it took away the pain temporarily. Things just got worse and worse. And I had no idea how bad they could get before they might start getting a little better. A lot of the time when I was losing my sight, I was still trying to look cool. I was still trying to look okay. And I was so embarrassed about losing my sight. At some point, I got involved with a supportive community of people who were very helpful to me. And when I stopped running from my blindness, my life started getting better immediately. It wasn't easy, but I was headed in the right direction. I remember one day I was just sitting around feeling frustrated with myself, and I just yelled, damn it, so I'm blind, so what? I'm still alive. I have a life to live here. I have to figure out how to do this. Blind's fingers had a guitar. To survive in a lake swimming a backstroke if I get what I need to stay alive using a white cane and I don't indulge in feeling so deprived I gotta make a move to get myself satisfied practicing yoga and you have the will Survive. Yes, you do. If you get what you need, stay alive. That's right. And yeah, you don't indulge in feeling so tired. You gotta make a move to get yourself satisfied. Satisfied. From high above and pulling away, Klein lies on his back on a stretch of grass. Charlotte Toshira, artist, Klein's partner, best friend. The fallacy that people that are blind live in darkness is not really the truth. For seeing individuals, they may see a blind person as living in darkness, but Marty always lives in the light. For myself, when I walk with Marty, the first thing I notice is we walk together. And in many of my relationships, either I walked ahead, or he walked ahead, but not often did we walk together. 
With Marty, we walk together. I am more secure and happier in this relationship than I've been in any other relationship. Five, untapped inspiration. Chris Gibson. I actually think that a mindset change is actually in order here because we often use the phrase dis disability, but uh, the, it's hard to quantify how enormously positive it is when human uh, incurs such trauma and they overcome that trauma that they become a unique and invaluable asset to the organization. These are incredibly inspiring stories. I think of Sergeant Major Cavazos. Uh, he was literally within eight hours of him being shot on one of my operations. I get a call from him and he was in Balad. So he wasn't even evacuated yet out of Iraq and he was calling me saying, sir, please don't give my position away. I wanna come back. Now keep in mind, Sergeant Cavazos could have been killed in action. I mean, he was shot in the face with an AK-47 round. It's a miracle that he didn't die. And within eight hours, he was pleading with me to keep his job. He absolutely kept his job. He not only kept his job, uh, he excelled at it, and he was a source of just remarkable inspiration to my unit. So, I, you know, I wanna say that I would not characterize what happened to Sergeant Cavazos as a disability, although it technically was one. Uh, it certainly qualifies for a disability. Uh, but what it really was, was this remarkable story of overcoming adversity that gave uh, just uh, real and significant value added to my organization. Major Castro. I say motivation comes from within. And, um, you know, if you're not motivated at the beginning, it's going to be a tough road for you. If you're not a go-getter and you're not motivated, it's going to be a really tough road. So you have to have a goal, a purpose. You have to be self-motivated. No one else can motivate you to do anything, you know. And uh, you have to really, you know, be, you know, accept the fact of the situation uh, and move on. You know, this is a, a risky business that we're in. And, uh, you know, you're subject to injuries or, or death. So, you know, you know the consequences before joining the military. Larry Winters. There's incredible resilience in people, and if they are doing something, all their mental health issues begin to, to diminish because they're functioning. They, they have an identity. They have, an, they have a way that they produce and create in the world. I don't think there's anything more healthy than spontaneity and creativity in a human being's life. There's no med that does this. Six, what we can do as a society. Anthony Forte. And I also think back that, you know, the Department of Defense and the Army led the way when it came to integration. We integrated the services long before we integrated our schools, long before we in integrated our communities. White and black kitchen workers. Why can't we lead in this piece? Why can't we be that same change agent we were back in the 1940s and the 1950s. Phyllis Bowie, captain, retired. My father was in the Marines and my grandfather was in the Army. I mean, so a history of, um, of the men in my family being in service. Pretty much everybody um, has been in service. I think you'll find a lot of African-American men during that era, which was the 50s and the 60s, they were actually volunteering to go into the service. Men and women from all races and religions make up our military but nobody is exempt from being vulnerable. A member of my family, he had um, three tours of duty from the time he was 18. 
Well, what happened was he wanted to go back. So he went to his parents and, and said, I want to go. And they were like, that's stupid. And so what we as vets do, this is a great example, whether you're wounded where you can see it or you're wounded where you can't see it, which is a large majority of us, when we get a pushback by any way, when we've opened up to family because they don't understand and we get that, we recoil. And unfortunately, he ended up committing suicide. A homeless man, U.S. Army veteran. The attention on the problem of suicide is important, but it's not just the problem of the veterans. Those veterans are our brothers and our sisters. It's our problem too, and we can't just sit around and feel bad for the multitudes of people who are affected by each veteran's suicide. We as a society need to step up and create new ideas to help reduce the effects of this cancer that is infiltrating hundreds of local communities throughout the country. Larry Winters. You know, the first thing that this general I was mentioning talked about, he says, well, so how, what's the morale in the, well, in, in the army? He says, oh, it's good, very good. And I thought, Jesus, it's very good? <laughs> I, I'm on the other end of the spectrum. I'm talking to guys who don't think it's very good at all who don't know how they're going to deal with it, who are living in the homeless or are suicidal or are suffering the after effects of what they experienced. And sometimes that does not happen in the first year, two years, three years. It, it's before, you know, it's when you create domestic violence, when you become a drug addict, when you somehow get no longer tolerated by those around you that you are forced to, with an ultimatum to get treatment or not. So that time delay doesn't show up in time for us to see that it actually takes place on the battlefield. A blonde woman at an exhibition. Teenage sweethearts, Ron and Lynette, married in 1971 after his three-year stint in Vietnam. And in 1972, their son Jason was born. Ron had PTSD and emotional problems from his years in Vietnam. And in 1991, took his own life from an overdose of heroin. Their son Jason was 19 when his father died. Jason also took his life from an overdose of heroin 15 years later at the age of 34. When Lynette Kristen Hughes. We spent time together. He showed me pictures of the soldiers and the Vietnamese that were dead laying in the streets that were horrifying. Um, and uh, he wouldn't, didn't want to talk about it. He showed me the pictures because I wanted to know, you know, what it was like, but he really did not want to talk about it. Emily Sachs. You know, and, and, and toward that point of, you know, treating the person as a whole person and integrating, you know, the parts of their lives and their histories, you know, from so many vets I hear that they'll, um, that, the, that the only attention that they'll get from civilians or the only acknowledgement of their service will be people coming up to them and saying, did you kill? anyone. And so that's really isolating um, one part, one aspect of them and, and doing the opposite of treating them like a whole person. That there's one Larry Winters thing that you learn in training. And everything you do has to do with killing the enemy. If you don't believe that you killed someone for moral reasons, you're in an emotional dilemma, a spiritual dilemma. I kept wondering, my disability was what the hell do I do with what this war did to me? How could I use it? There must be something in the middle of it that I learned, that I could use. And it took a lot of years of searching before I realized it's standing in front of a lot of people that want to kill themselves and being comfortable. 
because I did that before. And I, you know, I can talk to you if you want to kill yourself. I can say, I can confront you, I can deal with you, I can look at you, I can interact with you, I can stand in a room with you, and I'm not going to run away. I learned that somehow in my life experience at the, when I was planning on dying every day for thir 13 months. And so it took me a long, long time to figure that out. And once I got a hold of it, I tried to use it to do the opposite, which was to help people and not kill people. 22 veterans take their own lives every day. Emily Sachs. We do have to think about how we as a society or how we as communities um, may contribute to harmful myths um, about good things happening to good people and bad things happening to bad people, um, about uh, what health looks like and what is a healthy spectrum of emotion. Um, and also think about how our policies and our daily interactions might contribute to a soldier or veteran's sense of you know, threat and vulnerability and isolation, because these are uh, some of the killers. Lynette Kristen Hughes. Going into service and going to war and not knowing, I believe, you know, with the best of intentions, having no idea what's going to happen to you, what are you going to become, are you going to have to do. Um, going from being a, an altar boy in church and, and living in a little New Jersey town where everything is safe and you go to school, you have friends, you go roller skating, you know, whatever normalcy you've grown up with till that age, and then it's like nothing that you've ever experienced before. And then to bring that home to people who have been living safely, then they're affected by it. Your children are affected by it. Your relatives are affected by it, your parents. And it trickles out into the community. A headline, Orlando shooting. Mass shootings are becoming an increasing scourge on our society. However, most people do not realize the negative effects these events have on our veterans. Larry Winters. I know what's happening as I get older. I see the thing that happened in Orlando. He looks down. And, and this is what happens. So there's some kind of armor in me that's being lowered. There's something that's taking place. In my, as I get older in my world, where I am feeling what's going on in society at a deeper level, which I protected myself from since the war. Text, my life force is expressed not only by my desire to survive, but to transform myself into an even more magnificent human being than I already am. Marty Klein. The future of our country is all about supporting the younger generation. We can make a difference if we learn how to help our young veterans transition back to civilian life. Uh, 1994 to 1996, I lived in Gainesville, Florida, and I got a call one day from a disability agency. They wanted to know if I wanted to sign up for this program with, that was happening at the University of Florida. Uh, it turned out there was a course, 
And all the students had to give 20 hours of community service to some person with a disability in the community before they could pass the course. I signed up for it and I met this very nice student. Uh, her name was Maribel. And every week she came and gave me two hours of attention for whatever I wanted to do. Most of the time I wanted to go shopping or go for a long walk or have her read me some mail or some newspaper stuff. And it was really nice. She got to learn about me as a blind vet. I got to learn about her and her life. And uh, after 10 weeks, I felt like I wasn't alone. I wasn't isolated. And uh, it really helped me a lot. I think it helped her too. Why can't we have a program like that for all vets who come back into the country who are trying to adjust back into civilian life? I really think it would go a long way. I think it would help a lot. Next, once we accept our limits, we go beyond them. Albert Einstein. A book cover, No Greatness Without Goodness by Randy Lewis. Randy Lewis, former senior vice president of Walgreens, was instrumental in developing a work program that hired many disabled people. The goal was to have the disabled earn equal pay, just like other Walgreens employees, as long as they handled their jobs responsibly. The program has been incredibly successful. We discovered a wonderful technology. Randy Lewis. It's called ATP. Ask the person. Show them the job. Let them see if they, if they believe they can do it. For instance, in our case, if a person were to apply with one hand or one arm, our procedures say to do this safely, use two hands. So what we would do is bring the person in, let them see the job, and ask them, ask the person, how would you do this? Because they've, they've had sometimes a lifetime or years of experience of figuring all this stuff out. So we had to put that aside. The ask the person became the key technology, believe it or not, that made all this work. Keith Nolan signs an interpreter's voice. All of my life I was told no. Deaf people cannot serve in the military. I started to internalize that belief. Okay, deaf people can't serve. Uh, however, when I went to Israel, I learned that there are several deaf and hard of hearing Israeli soldiers. And I said, no way, this isn't possible. I, I, you know, I thought deaf people couldn't serve in the military. Uh, after spending three weeks there interviewing several of the Israeli deaf soldiers, uh, I realized that there was huge potential and opportunity for the deaf and hard of hearing soldiers to serve. Randy Lewis. Deaf people, for, from our standpoint, it wasn't much of a disability. It wasn't much of a disability. We, people didn't think, can deaf people drive? Can deaf people drive forklifts? If they can't hear their horn, how can they operate safely? Applying ATP, ask the person. We ask a deaf person, how would you test your horn? And one person says, well, I'd put my hand on the cowling and tap the horn and I could feel it. Made sense. Second person, how would you test your horn? Well, I would pull up behind a group of people who are talking and see who jumped. Same answer. I mean, people like Procter & Gamble, Starbucks is doing this in Nevada, Lowe's is doing this big, Meyer, a company and big retailer in Britain is doing it, a company in Brazil, Hershey, UPS, they've all, they all come in and they see this and they go, 
Well, I, I remember when the, the senior vice president of Lowe's came and he made a visit and called me after the visit. He said, I saw it, I got it, and I want it. And that's what happens. If other countries and successful businesses understand the value of those with disabilities, what then needs to happen for our military to begin to honor as well as value our disabled soldiers? Well, if you ask about soldiers who are high functioning, should they have a chance to transition into a non-combatant role? Of course. This is right in the military credo for me. And here's what we found out. People with disabilities can perform as well. We studied all the numbers. They work more safely. They have less absenteeism, better retention. That's what we look for in the workforce. One thing about having a lot of people with disabilities around, they remind us all, I don't know why, but they make the workplace better. Maybe they remind us of that good person inside ourselves. It's not about pity. It's about reminding each other, it's about each other. And that translates and say, it's not about making me successful. How do I make all those around me successful? And that's why we got so excited about hiring people with disabilities. It's not just as good, it's actually better. Charlotte Hoshira. Quite honestly, I don't know anyone that doesn't have a disability of some sort or another. If this film does what it's supposed to do, another segment of the population will wake up. And waking up is what we all need to do. Text, when you learn how to ask for help, you open the door to unlimited possibilities. Seven, from fear to courage, a soldier sitting in a wheelchair watches others in a foot race. But it's a two-way street. If disabled veterans would like to see positive change, then they also must step up. They must work toward a more empowered view of themselves as well as all other people with disabilities. Your perception of yourself has power. The idea that you are a victim is a myth, but as long as you believe it, it will run your life. What you perceive is what you believe. Text, I may need to lie down and weep for a while, but I'll soon rise to dance another dance. James Michener. Major Castro. Do I get uh, depressed and I get frustrated with my limitations? Yes, I do. Uh, but I quickly, you know, realized that my situation could have been worse. I did a lot of great things before I lost my sight, and I've been able to do a lot of great things after. We ask our soldiers to be courageous in protecting our country and our way of life. Can we as a society show that same kind of courage by reaching out to our veterans as well as our disabled vets? Ashton Carter, former Secretary of Defense. Recognizing that our openness to diversity is one of the things that have allowed us to be the best in the world. We must ensure that everyone who's able and willing to serve has the full and equal opportunity to do so. Embracing diversity and inclusion is critical to recruiting and retaining the force of the future. Randy Lewis. The number one impediment is fear. Fear they can't do the job. Fear uh, there'll be an accident. Fear, uh, fear of whatever. This is not a procedure we usually do. On and on and on. And the question what we had to do was say, look, let's give it our best chance. We're going to make mistakes. But guess what? What do we do when we do anything else when we make a mistake? We fix it and we move on. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, 32nd president. Let me assert my 
my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Roosevelt in his wheelchair. After all, one of our most important presidents was Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and he skillfully and successfully guided our country through the end of World War II, possibly the darkest time in the history of our planet. And FDR was not just our president, but he was also the commander-in-chief of our military. And he did all that while spending most of his adult life in a wheelchair. In 2004, after being shot down in Iraq, Black Hawk helicopter pilot, U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel Tammy Duckworth was rescued. In spite of losing limbs in the attack, she recovered and is now serving her country as a senator from Illinois. Tammy Duckworth. What I do know is that I started that day doing what I loved. I ended it knocked down, surviving only because my buddies refused to leave me and wouldn't stop, even as they struggled to carry my body with its missing limbs. I worked hard, but I had a lot of help from my community and my country. And my story is not unique. It's a story about why this is the greatest nation on earth, a nation that so many are willing to die defending. A nation that says, if you keep working hard, we won't abandon you. It is inevitable that there will be a younger generation of disabled soldiers with life challenges to overcome. Their work will be to make that transition with as much grace as possible. Our job now is to strongly encourage the military to stand by those disabled soldiers and let them know they will be valued and not abandoned. Anthony Forte is currently living in Fayetteville, North Carolina and is still looking for work. He's been taking some courses to brush up on his skills for the civilian job world. Bill Forte is currently chairman of the Kingston Veterans Association and resides in Kingston, New York. Larry Winters is an ex-Marine, retired psychotherapist in search of the peace he fought for. He lives in New Paltz, New York. Ivan Castro is an advocate for people with disabilities. He's involved in adaptive sports, adventure challenges, and is a motivational speaker. A man with a prosthetic leg surfs, balancing on a surfboard. Two men race on prosthetic legs. In Deuteronomy, God said, I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. I have the will to survive. If I get what I need, stay alive. Climbing a mountain with prosthetic legs. And I don't indulge in feeling so deprived. I gotta make a move to get myself Satisfied. Wheelchair basketball with no legs racing a three wheeled vehicle. Satisfied. And you have the will to survive. Yes, you do. If you wheelchair rugby, you need to stay alive. That's right. And if you don't indulge. 
Playing baseball with a prosthetic leg. You gotta make a move to get yourself satisfied. Climbing a sheer rock wall using a prosthetic leg. You've got to get wheelchair racers, water skiing and surfing with one leg. You've got to get yourself satisfied. And you don't indulge in feeling so deprived. You've got to get yourself satisfied. In a wheelchair, careening, flipping and jumping in a ramped skateboard park. If I get what I need to stay alive And I don't indulge in feeling Feeling so deprived I will survive If I get what I need to stay alive And I don't indulge in feeling Blind racing so Skiing on one ski if you were touched by this film in some way and would like to become more active in support of our efforts, please encourage your local veterans organizations to contact their U.S. Senators and Representatives and ask them to support the movie. For further ideas about how you can help, please go to our Why Can't We Serve website. Credit scroll including producer and director Marty Klein, script written by Marty Klein, executive producers Sandra Palmer Shaw, a very special angel, cinematographer and editor Michael Nelson, assistant director Charlotte Tushirer, associate producers Mark Ward, Rosary Solomonto, research director Melissa Eppard, narration John Romeo, Cornelia Seckel, music throughout the documentary by Jay Ungar and Molly Mason. The song, A Veteran's Anthem, was written by Marty Klein for inspiration to help him and other vets focus on life, not death. Thanks to all cherished donors who supported this project with financial assistance. Thanks to Lisa Katzman for her expertise and thoughtful guidance. Audio description provided by Joel Snyder and Audio Description Associates. Thank you. It's always fun to listen and you know be aware around everybody who has different responses. And um, I'm I'm delighted to have shown this to a visually impaired audience because you actually respond differently than other people. <laughs> A any thoughts, any questions? This is a Q&A period, so, yeah. Yeah.
at, at this point, we've shown it to a number of veterans groups. And in fact, on the 29th of July, we're going to show it again in Newburgh uh, to a vet-to-vet -vet group. Um, uh, but we have not yet shown it to an active group, and I can't wait to do it. You know, I'm glad you're speaking, Elizabeth, because I want to say that when I made this movie, I had two intentions, obviously, to try to help reduce suicides and change the culture around disabilities. But um, when I made the movie, I made it a point to not put down the military or the Veterans Association. And I made it a point to not focus on the sympathetic side of people with disabilities, but the inspirational side. So. Um, I don't want to juxtapose the movie with any weird stuff the administration is doing. I want to keep it separate. No, I'm, not, I'm not juxtapose it. I'm it's it's the it's the pipeline for let, let me jump around and get questions and we can continue discussions afterwards. Thank you, Elizabeth. Others? Yeah. Um, I had the opportunity during oh just shortly after the ADA was adopted to be lobbying pretty much full-time as, uh, as a career, and I knew Justin Darso not well, but knowing part of his background and then seeing the footage uh, John Walgreens, which I hadn't uh, been right. aware of their program, uh, put some questions in my mind about Olympia. Uh, I know that in the early days of Justin Darso's disability, his family was heir to some of the Walgreens uh, fortunes. And that they really didn't want Justin Dart and his civil rights efforts to be involved with anything they were doing, and, and there was a schism in that family, which resulted in Justin Dart going to Japan and making his own fortune, uh, largely taking Tupperware into Japan. And he used that fortune then to uh, fund his efforts in getting the ADA passed. I'm just curious about the transition from a family with an attitude not supporting Justin way back in those early days to the wonderful program that you're yeah. showing in the film where they're now opening the doors to more disabled employees. And I, I wonder if you could talk about that transition because I really don't know quite how that happened. Well, well, to be honest with you, you know, the serendipity things that happened to me when I was making the movie, I'll give you an example. Um, um, uh, in Tallahassee, Florida, a couple of winters ago, and I'm dealing with some kind of uh, malady that is keeping me up at night, and it's really frustrating. So one night I put the headphones on to just listen to something to distract me from worrying about my body, and I hear this conversation on the BBC from Europe about these four people on a panel talking about disability. One of, 
one of the guys who was on the uh, panel was named Randy Lewis. And after I heard him speak in Europe, I said, I got to get in touch with this guy. You know, and I called him. And sure enough, he said he'd be happy to be interviewed. And that's how he's in the movie. Um, the woman that you saw on there, um, Lynette Kristen Hughes, uh, I, was, I didn't have anybody to connect from the Gold Star families because those are the people who have lost loved ones. And there's no way to connect with them. Uh, they have the pretty, pr pretty protected. So no emails, no phone calls, and all that. So I, I was willing to send my cinematographer out to Utah or Arizona to get somebody who had lost a spouse who I could interview. And I'm, I'm showing the 11 minutes, the first 11 minutes of the movie uh, at Charlotte's Kingston home. With, it's called the Lace Mill. And there were a bunch of people there. And after the movie, one of the women who's talking about it is mentioning that she lost her husband. And she's right there in Kingston. I would have sent Mike to, to you know, Weston. <laughs> it turns out that she was very happy to support the movie, and that's, that was Chris, uh, Lynette in the movie. So you never know. You just got to keep your eyes and ears open, and things happen. But I don't know Randy Lewis well enough to know what happened in the Walgreens uh, story. But I do know that he's obviously a big supporter of uh, disabled people working at equal pay. No, I just thought it was delightful that Walgreens has obviously made some transitions. And yeah, yeah. They had their split with Justin Dark way back when. Yeah, yeah. But maybe, maybe, we, maybe we can talk later, because I'm one of the things on my, on my list of things to find is a lobbyist. So you mentioned that you've been a lobbyist, and maybe you can help me find somebody that can help me lobby in uh, Congress for this stuff. You may still have some information that would be useful. Uh, what time do we have? I want to know. So, uh, Oh, we have a few minutes. That's great. OK, other questions, please? It appears to be that when we, like Larry Winters spoke, he said, if, if we're trained to kill, uh, and it's a moral war that we feel like it was really, it made sense to interrupt something that was horrible, we don't have as much PTSD than when we are uh, bringing soldiers back who were uh, trained to kill and they don't know why they had to. It's very deep. Exactly. So, uh, you know, I think it's first, if the more appears to be moral by the public in the U.S., then the trained soldiers feel like they have the public backing them. It's a whole different thing than if you come back and you're not seen as, uh, you know, when we came out of Vietnam, we were soldiers and we were not treated well in this society. Right now, uh, the society treats veterans pretty darn well, but we're still not learning that the pipeline of suicide from veterans is because of a lot of things. And I think the movie addresses some of those issues. Now, there was another question here about the money involved. Actually, the first uh, mention, as you mentioned, the multiple uh, initiatives that are being forced to keep going in back here, that's just having PTSD going back here. Sure. Even firemen and, and soldiers, uh, uh, policemen go through PTSD now. Oh, I was going to say thirty thousand dollars. <laughs> that's the amount. That's the amount of money that I raised to actually complete the film. 
which, which is, uh, if you know anything about film, it's very cheap. Even though it was a nice amount of money still, I didn't take a dime, and it was just all an act of love. Um, but but we don't have it for sale right now, but if we do, it would probably be about 10 bucks, something like that. But uh, we're working on getting that onto the website, the Why Can't We Serve website, so keep checking it out, and at some point we'll have it available. Yeah? Not at this time. No, no, no. <laughs> no, but we, we it will, you know, we're working on getting it on PBS, uh, HBO, and Netflix. We need a celebrity to endorse it to get into those positions. Why can't we serve? And if you go to whycantweserve.com, that's the website, and the Why Can't We Serve Facebook page you can search for, there's a lot of great clips on that, too. Charlotte, you want to say something? Okay, next, please. Uh, Sarah. I'm not exactly sure who you're talking about. Among the credits was uh, Sandra Palmer Shaw, who uh, had donated uh, some of her funds to the, help the movie get started. And uh, uh, she's no longer alive. She did die about a year or so ago. Yes. Yes, and that's right. Well, well, you know, obviously the movie was my effort to try to reduce suicides, but also to change the culture around how people see disability in our country, and that's the bigger picture the way I see it. But, um, uh, you know, anything that you want to say or do, having seen the movie, if you're moved at all, it will be helpful because I can't do it alone, obviously. And everybody who talks about it, who uh, writes to a congressman, who encourages them to look at the website, all of that stuff makes a difference. It's amazing. I got an email on my Why Can't We Serve uh, uh, website from a, a teenager in North Carolina who saw, um, you know, who looked at the website and saw the clip on there. We have the three-minute clip. And she asked, she was in ROTC, uh, ROTC training in high school in, in North Carolina, and she wanted to know if she could join the military because she was blind. And I told her no, um, and I'm sorry to say that, but right now the movie is trying to be able to make it possible for those who are disabled from combat or on-the-job injury to remain in the military. Right now, it's too much of a stretch to have people with disability actually eligible to join. But, but for me to get an email from a teenager in North Carolina said to me, this movie is getting out there. 
People are talking about it. Yeah, we, I tried submitting it uh, a couple, uh, last year, and for whatever reason, it didn't go well. I did not get accepted to a couple of places, and I pulled back because um, the movie is too important to be only going down one venue, one avenue. So um, at some point, maybe we'll try again for the film festivals, but right now, uh, we're contact. You know, on March 5th of this year, just four, four months ago, um, the president signed an initiative to form a task force specifically to reduce veteran suicides. And in that initiative, it's stated that they have spent billions of dollars toward veterans programs, and they have not been able to figure out a way to slow the suicide rate down. 54,000 veterans have committed, uh, taken their lives in the last nine years, or eight years, something like that, and they don't know what to do, so they, fo they formed this task force. I want to show this movie to the task force. I want to be there in Washington to talk to them about it because my ideas in the movie they have not thought about yet. Yes. And, you know, that's always been a wonderful program. What I'm trying to do, though, is to ha have... See, once you get your discharge papers, then you are officially a veteran. While you're in the military, you are uh, military personnel or soldiers or troops, whatever you want to call it. But if you're disabled in the military um, and you go to rehab knowing that you're going to be discharged out you're going to get a little bit of a disability check, but you're on your own with this new disability. The, 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 the time it takes those people to rehab takes a lot longer than if they're in rehab knowing they're going right back to a job in the military. They want to stay in. They want to serve. They want to have a purpose. And although those jobs in the veterans, you know, the veteran programs, they're really good, they're still not addressing what I'm addressing here. But it's a two... They work together, and if, if the military can change their policy here and allow a certain percentage of those who are disabled and still highly functioning to remain, I think the VA will benefit because they'll have less pressure. I think the military will benefit, and these soldiers certainly won't want to be taking their lives because they want to stay, they want to serve, they want to have a purpose. Yeah, uh, again, the logistics, I don't have the answer to all these things, but I know, I always tell people, like, you know, African Americans were not allowed to be serving. Well, they got in, they integrated the military. Women were not allowed, they joined. Now women can be in combat. You know, bef before uh, the latest confusion in the administration, we had 
LGBT people in the military. You know, so uh, if the military, if they're told to do it, they'll change, but they're not going to initiate it. So we need a groundswell of support to get the, mili get the Congress to want to see the military change. It could be either an executive order, or it could be uh, uh, legislation, or we could just keep bringing this, making it public, and getting the word out, and enough people yell about it, and something's going to start happening. Any other comments, questions? Um, no, I did not. I, I've shown it uh, a couple of places in St. Petersburg, Florida, a couple of places in Tallahassee, Florida, once in Washington, D.C., and a few times in uh, the Hudson Valley, and now once here. <laughs> so... If you could send me your uh, the email information, I will follow up on that. Thank you, Elizabeth. Any other comments or questions? Okay. We showed the film in the Socrates American Legion Hall just about three weeks ago. And um, we had a wonderful turnout. And at the end of the movie, uh, the uh, Sargates police chief uh, who was there and the Ulster County Sheriff who was there both asked me to contact them because they wanted to show the movie to their staff. Because the, the Sargates police chief said, all the information about PTSD is all intellectual information. But his staff, if they see this movie, they'll have a more of a deeper understanding of what the veterans are going through. That's right. So I have them, you know, they loved it and they wanted to, you know, and, and the, there's a, there was a guy there who interviewed me uh, who's going to write an article with the focus of me being the only totally blind filmmaker in the country. Uh, it's a nice little title, but for me, if it gets more recognition for the movie, that's all I really care about. So I think it will, but we'll see what happens with that. Yeah. Thank you so much, and thank you all of you for being here. Lynn, you want the mic? Thank you all so much for coming. It's been a Great pleasure to get to know these two remarkable people over the past day and hope to always stay in touch with them. And thank you, Marty, and any other veteran and anybody who is related to any veteran, thank them too. And a lot of times I, I say thank you when I go and volunteer at the VA with some of my guys, and it means more than you think. So say it as much as you can. Okay. So... Um, if you are in the writer's workshop, this is your air, this is your aircraft. You <laughs> I'm going to give you the closing code as soon as I find it. Just one, just one second, because she may need to leave. Let me give her the closing code. You ready? Um, is two two C is in Charlie. Two F is in Frank. Okay.
please, please pay attention. Let me, because this is important for her. Folks, okay, 2, 2, C as in Charlie, 2, F as in Frank. That's, okay, w one more time. 2, 2, C, 2, F as in Frank. Oh, do you have that? Okay. I know, it is. Okay. Okay. And thank you so much. If, again, if you are in the writer's workshop, you will be in here. Um, and thank you for coming. Come to the showcase. You'll get to sing, uh, get, hear Marty do this whole anthem and even participate with him. So come and do it. Thank you.